If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, we made it through Luke 12. Took us about six weeks, and we're now we're at Luke 13. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. The reality of evil and tragedy and suffering in our world is something that, that can't be ignored. Um, we live in a world that, that's marked by evil. It's marked by the evil of, of other people. It's marked by sin. It's marked by suffering. It's marked by things like natural disasters that happen all over the place. There are large-scale tragedies that have marked each of us and, and all of us. We can Many of us here, if, you, if we are old enough, remember where we were on September 11, 2001. That's something that is ingrained in our minds that we all, we all know that tragedy. Um, maybe not as, as ingrained, but for some certainly so. The, the tsunami on December 26, 2004, if you remember that, the day after Christmas that, that hit and, and struck so many nations in Asia. Not to mention so many natural disasters that have occurred around uh, the world and have occurred in our lifetimes. There are more localized tragedies. We can think about all these planes that have been going down. What is um, the, the, the tragedy that strikes these nations? And some of them shot down and some of them caught in storms. We can think about this outbreak of Ebola that's spreading in, in West Africa and how that, certain people are affected by that. But there's some things that are more local. You turn on the news and we can see people that have been murdered within our own city. Car accidents that, that people have died in or have been hurt in. Freak accidents that happen. And there's things that are more personal. They don't make the news, but they have struck us. They've hit close to home. A suffering that we personally have faced, or a loved one has faced. Tragedy that comes out of nowhere and we don't really know how to deal with it. How should we think about these things? How should we think about life and God and and, and living as Christians in light of the presence of, of suffering in our world. We have to deal with this. We can't, we can't ignore the question. Because to, to ignore that question is actually to probably ignore the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, objection that people have to Christianity. And it's the presence of suffering in the world. How can a good God cause something like a tsunami? How can a good God allow something like September 11th to happen? We've got to deal with that, with that question. And not just because people are going to ask us it, but because we are going to ask ourselves that question. When it hits us, all of us have to ask that question. Even as Job suffered, he asked the question, God, I know you're there, but I just don't understand what's going on. And, and in Luke 13, we have Jesus answering in part that question from a certain angle. The, the question of, of evil and suffering and how does that exist and how do we understand that in light of a good and a sovereign God, that, that's such a huge question. And there's so many different angles that we have to come at it with. And so we're going to get one of those angles with Jesus, how he's going to answer that question. And then the reason we're going to jump into Habakkuk in God's sovereignty, it works out so well that this is where we're heading, but um, I don't want to take any credit for the planning because it, it just sort of happened that way. But we will enter into Habakkuk because Habakkuk addresses this question of suffering from a different angle and, and, and calls us to live by faith in the midst of suffering. And then hopefully... Um, 
the last Sunday in August, we're just going to try to take an understand a, a broader picture of of what the New Testament ha- has to say about how we live as Christians in light of suffering. But this morning, we want to look at what Jesus says here when this idea of tragedy is brought up to him. And there's a sense of urgency in this passage. One way that we could summarize the focus of this passage would be to say that in light of tragedy, repent while there is still time. That's one way we could say it. Repent while there is still time. Um, I'd like to think about that, but also think about it from a, from a different way. Think about this sentence, one that I shamelessly borrow from the Christianity Explored study that we were doing on Tuesday nights. Um, for those of you that were here, you might remember this. They said in this study, We are more sinful than we ever realized, but more loved than we ever dreamed. I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to say here. We are more sinful than we ever realized but more loved than we ever dreamed. In the wake of tragedy, that's what Jesus wants you to know. He wants us to know this. You are more sinful than you ever realized. And you are more loved than you ever dreamed. And tragedy, in fact, whether it happens to us or happens to others, and we sort of see it, it communicates both of these things with clarity and with urgency. So look with me at Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, and killed them. Do you, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, till I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should, be, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. We read those verses together because I think the parable and the teaching of verses 1 through 5 are are linked. We can't understand the parable without understanding what Jesus is saying in verses 1 through 5. Just note real quick the the structure of the passage so we're all kind of flowing together with this. You you notice there's this group of people that bring um, a a current event of sorts to Jesus. He answers them with with a, he asks them a question, he answers the question, and then he gives the application, repent. Jesus brings another scenario, asks the same question, gives the same answer, and the same application, repent. And then he moves into this parable about a fig tree, a man who had planted a fig tree. And the first thing that we notice, especially in verses 1 through 5, and then also in verses 6 and 7, is that we are more sinful than we ever realized. We're more sinful than we ever realized. Verse 1 tells him that tells us that some people from the crowd came and they they told Jesus they or or brought it to Jesus's attention about this horrendous evil that that Pilate 
had carried out. We don't know the exact situation. There's no parallel in ancient histories that we can find. There's, but there are similar situations. That we, we can tell what happens there is that there's, there's some Galileans, Jewish believers, who were offering sacrifices. And if they're offering sacrifices, then they are in the temple. And in the midst of offering sacrifices, Roman soldiers or some people sent from Pilate come to these Galilean worshippers and kill them, such that the phrase there is, Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. They are killed in the act of offering sacrifices. So their, their own blood mixes with the blood of the sacrifices. It's, it's a horrific scene. And it's a perfect example of, of evil that happens from human beings to other human beings. It would seem that, that, that they brought this to Jesus' attention. They, they wanted Jesus to comment on this in some way. Or, or maybe they're linking it back to the previous verses that we studied in chapter 12. Remember this idea of, of judgment coming. Um, you need to settle now with the judge before he, before you have to get thrown in jail and you pay the, every, last penal, every last penny. And so maybe they, they think about this idea of judgment and then they, these Galileans come to mind in this whole situation and they think, now there's an example of people that were judged because of their sin. They thought these are people deserving judgment, these Galileans that were killed by Pilate. Jesus kind of in his answer helps us to see that this is is what they were thinking and why they brought him this news. So Jesus asks the question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He asked that question because they would have said, yes, that's what we think. That's that's why we brought it up, Jesus. Because there's this this understanding that, in other words, they're saying that the evil of these, of, of Pilate, doing this is actually not what's in focus. But more the evil of these Galileans is what's in focus. They're saying they suffered in this horrific way. They must have done something really bad to deserve that. It was terrible what happened, but they must have had it coming. I mean, they must have done something. They must have been really bad sinners. And this was justice that was, that was falling on them. Now, this crowd's not the only ones that, that think that way. The disciples ask a similar question in John 9, 2. They, they come upon a man who had been blind from birth. And it says in John 9, 2, his disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man, the blind man, or his parents, that he was born blind. So they're saying, someone must have sinned, Jesus, for this guy to face this, this, this fate, for him to be blind it was either him or his parents, but this has to be punishment for someone's sin. Of course, Jesus answers, it's not that this man, that it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This was again the logic of Job's friend that, that, that Joshua brought out so well. Remember Job, he's this, this man who is, is rich in material wealth. He's blessed with, with a large family. And according to God's divine plan, he loses everything in a matter of hours. And as he is grieving his losses, he's seeking to understand God's purposes, and his, his three friends come to comfort him. And Job rightly calls them miserable comforters, because they come and they are so convinced that evil only comes upon those that are evil, that they keep trying to convince Job that he must have done something extremely bad 
And they're just trying to mine that out. What did you do, Job, to deserve this? One of his friends, Eliphaz, says in Job 4, 7-8, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Implied answer, no one. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Job, you must have been doing something wrong. Same guy in Job 22, 4-5 says, Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Here's Job suffering, trying to understand God, and his friends come and say, Wow, there is no end to your iniquities, and your evil is abundant because of all these bad things that have happened to you. Now pause for a minute. Is the crowd and the disciples and and Job's friend, could they be right? Could they, they be right that suffering comes on those who sin. I think there has to be a sense in which the judgment of God falls on those who deserve it more than on other people. There's, there's, there's a sense in which this has to be true, right? There are consequences for sin. I had a professor in seminary, I've probably said this before, he would often say, if we divided this room in half, and I said to this half of the room, do everything that you can to obey the Ten Commandments for the next five years. And then I turned to this half of the room and I said, do everything that you can to disobey the Ten Commandments for the next five years. And we all gathered together again in the next five years. This group presumably would be doing decent. This group would be either dead or in jail or pretty miserable in life. If if we seek to disobey God's commandments, within the commandments there is a judgment that happens upon us. There are consequences for sin. The problem is that that while that's true in some circumstances, it, it's it's not true in every circumstances. In every circumstance, it, and and it's difficult to speculate on that, isn't it? In fact, it, it's never really safe to speculate as to why something has happened. Jesus doesn't join in with the crowd and say, "Yeah, let's think about. I wonder what they must have done to deserve that." We do well to follow Jesus's example. I think when tragedy happens. It never goes well to say, this must be God's judgment on our nation because of such and such a sin. That is never a wise thing to say. To presume that that is why God is doing something. Or to see someone's life and say, I know why God did this. It's because of this specific sin in that person's life. It could be right. But that is a very scary thing to say. I think we would beware of saying that. And, and the ways of God, this idea that, that evil brings about evil all the time and good always brings about good, the, the world and the ways of God are just too, too complicated to boil down to that sort of simple formula that, that's being brought up here. It would be easy though, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a lot easier? If we believed in some, side of, some sort of Christian karma, Right? So, like, um, those who do good always receive good, and those who do evil always receive evil. But Jesus doesn't buy that. He, he turns to the crowd, and he moves their minds from them to me. He takes the spotlight off of the Galileans, and he turns it on to them. Look what he says there. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He's very clear, isn't he? No. <laughs> no, that is not correct. He doesn't deny that suffering comes on those who sin. He just says that that all have sinned is the point. 
everyone has sinned and everyone is equally deserving of death and judgment. Are those are, are there people who have committed more evil than others? Are there people whose lists of sin are longer than mine? Probably. But the reality is that we are all sinners. And as James says, if we kept the whole law and offended in one point, we are guilty of all. We are rebels before God and we all are deserving of judgment. So Jesus calls us out of the place of looking at others who suffer and saying, well, I'm better than that guy. He lumps all of humanity together as guilty before God. He, he speaks the truth of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are more sinful than we ever realized. And if that's true, then this heinous evil on a group of Galileans should not have caused the crowd to question the sinfulness of those victims, but rather to look at their own hearts and to repent. That's what Jesus says. He says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. If you don't repent, it's going to be just as bad for you. This idea of likewise perishing, it probably doesn't mean that they're going to face the same sort of horrific death. Um, One commentator, Leon Morris, says it like this, perhaps the thought is that the manner of the death of the Galileans gave them no time to repent. There's there's an urgency. It just happens when they're not expecting it. So the problem with the crowd is that they're asking the wrong question. The question in the face of evil is, is were they worse sinners? Is, it should not be, were they worse sinners than everyone else? But the question should be, why wasn't I the victim of that tragedy? And have I repented of my rebellion against God? What if that was me? Now Jesus hammers home the point in verses 4 and 5, right? He brings up another scenario. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He brings up a totally different scenario. The first one was was evil brought on people by other people. But this tower falling is sort of kind of like a natural disaster of sorts. It would have been, a, we presume, a tower near the pool of Siloam along the, the, the wall of Jerusalem. And it crumbled maybe during construction or maybe a little bit after. And, and as it crumbles, it falls and it kills 18 people in an instant. Can you imagine just one day you're walking around the city. You're going to the market and all of a sudden around you this, this tower begins to fall. And it crushes people around you. Maybe, maybe it even crushes you. It's just this disaster that happens in a moment. Jesus says the question isn't whether or not those people were worse sinners than everyone else that was in Jerusalem that day. Because that maybe is what people thought. Well, they must have been crushed because they did something terribly wrong. But rather, this is another example of, of people who we need to repent. You need to repent. You are more sinful than you ever realized. It's this reminder that, that life is, is fragile. Whether it's because of the evil of others or, or just natural disasters that occur in this sin-scarred world, there, there are random acts of violence in our world, aren't there? They, they occur just like they did in Jesus' day. We, we lock our doors, we have security systems because bad things could happen. But the reality is we never think they're going to happen to us, Right? I mean, there's evil in the world, and we see things on the news, but we always assume, well, it's going to happen to someone else. 
But it could happen to me. It could happen to you. you know, we become accustomed to driving down the highway at 70 miles per hour and don't realize that you know, in a moment, something could go wrong with that car. You could blow a tire. The guy next to you can blow a tire. And that's it. It could happen in a moment. We see it on the news and we assume it's going to happen to everyone else. It could happen to me. It could happen to you. It could happen to you on the way home today. Just as a side note, isn't it interesting that Jesus uses this? He kind of uses that, that old preacher thing of, you may not make it home today, you know? I think that sometimes we, 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 are, we back away from that. We've become a little bit too sophisticated to use those kinds of things. And we don't want to scare anyone into, um, into belief, and yet at the same time, the reality of judgment and the reality of death and the reality of the uncertainty of life and that we may die today, that's something that, that we need to be ready and willing to ask people, to bring up, to talk to others and say, what if you did die? Isn't that, I think we need to follow Jesus' example. When people bring up the issues of tragedy in the world, that one of the things we might be able to say is, well, let's think about what if, what if that was you? What if you had been in that plane? What if you had been in that car? What if you got that disease? Are you ready to meet God? That's what Jesus is doing here. It's just a a beautiful example of of him turning the tables and helping us see what, what really matters. Jesus says that the tragedy that strikes others should cause us to ask, Have I repented? What if that was me? Am I ready to stand before the judge of all the earth? As as we saw at the end of chapter 12, have I settled with God? As I I got this court date coming, and it may come quicker than I expected, because I may die in this moment and and face Him, or Jesus may come back in this moment and I face Him. We don't know when these things are going to happen. Are we ready to face that? The application is clear then. Repent. That, that could be the one word application for this whole passage is repent. Turn. Don't walk away from God. Turn and walk back towards Him. Turn from sin and turn by faith to Christ. If you're not sure, if, if you ask these questions about what if you did die today? Are you right with God? If you stand before a holy God, what what will that be like for you? How will that go for you? Have you settled with God? And you say, I don't know. You know what Jesus says? Repent. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. You need to come to Him now. Now is the day of salvation. Don't spurn His patience, but, but come to Him now in repentance and in faith. That's the application. Don't look at everyone else and think about what they have done wrong. And I wonder why they suffered in that way, but instead say, what if that's me? Am I ready to face a holy God? But repentance isn't just the way of becoming a Christian. For those of us who are Christians, it's good for us to to pause and to think about our lives. What what if that was me? What if I died right now? Repentance is is a matter of, of a lifestyle for the Christian. Martin Luther, the first of his 95 theses that he nailed was on the wall this is the first one when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance our whole life life is to be marked by repentance and faith it's not just how we become a Christian but it's how we live the Christian life is in repentance and faith repentance and faith we get lazy sometimes we've talked about this a lot this is Jesus keeps hammering on this it says what if that tower fell on you what if the evil came to you? 
Are you living a life of repentance? Are you keeping a short list of sins before God? Not, not that that repentance is what makes us right before God in that moment, but rather that, that we are walking with and pleasing God, that we, that we are serving Him, even if in a moment He takes our lives. I think still, though, there were people that didn't get the urgency of this. They weren't shaken by this tower that fell or the, the slain Galileans. There were those who, who still did not see how sinful they really were. They didn't get it. And so Jesus tells this parable. In verse 6, he, he speaks of a, a man who planted a, a fig tree in a vineyard, which would not have been uncommon. Fig trees were, were considered valuable. And um, to plant one in a vineyard gave it this ideal place to, to grow and to, to bear fruit and to thrive. The only problem is that with this fig tree, it's been three years and there's no fruit on it. Planted in, in the right areas, a fig tree supposedly can, can bear fruit for ten months. Um, three different crops of figs can come out of one fig tree. So there should be only two barren months. And this guy's got three barren years where there's been no fruit on this fig tree. And so the owner of the vineyard comes and he says, I've been, I've been coming here year after year after year and I'm seeing nothing. And this thing is just, it's, it's pulling all the nutrients out of my ground. It's wasting space here. Cut it down. Let's get rid of this thing. Specifically here, I, I think in this passage, if we look at the context, that this fig tree is to represent the, the nation of Israel. We see it at the end of the chapter where Jesus is crying out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is is calling out to the children of Israel and he says, you are this fig tree. But not just within the context here, but in in the Old Testament, fig trees and vines are used to represent the nation of Israel so often. In Isaiah 5, listen to these words of Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me? What, was, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. We've seen throughout the book of Luke this, this call for fruitfulness, to bear fruit. And a lack of fruit is a, shows a lack of life. It's a sign that, that a person is not a true follower of God if they are not bearing fruit. So Jesus calls out to his people, Israel, to the Jewish people, the people that he had come to. And he says, I've been with you for three years. You've seen 
all that I've done, you've heard everything that I've said, and you remain fruitless. So judgment is coming. They should have had the words of John the Baptist from chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, ringing in their ears. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then listen to this. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think that the crowd may have not been shaken by the the evil that Pilate had done. They weren't shaken by the Tower of Siloam, in part because they said, well, we're Israel, though. We are, we are the fig tree. We are, we are blessed. And as, as, as John the Baptist says, people were saying, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, the fact that you are the fig tree, the fact that you are physical descendants of Abraham, the people of God, that will not save you. You need to repent and believe. Everyone must repent and believe. Or you face destruction. You face judgment. This is, too, this is true with, with all people. Whatever your excuse might be to say, well, I won't face that judgment because of this, that, or the other. Everyone needs to repent. The call is for, for all to repent, all to come to repentance and faith. Because we are more sinful than we ever imagined. We, we want to look at everyone else's sin, but instead, if we look at our own, In light of tragedy, we realize, I must repent. Because of our sinfulness, judgment is is coming. And we don't know when that judgment is going to come. We don't know what disaster might strike us today. And no one who remains unfruitful, no one who does not submit to repentance towards God and faith in Christ, no one in that state will stand before God on judgment day blameless. You will come to the court date, and if we have not settled with God, there will be judgment. So Jesus says, repent. Repent while there is still time. We are more sinful than we ever imagined. But we are more loved than we ever dreamed. We are more loved than we ever dreamed. That's, that's the, the point of this second part of the parable. At our house, we have a, a hibiscus plant. It's in this lovely red pot, and it's been there for eight years, something like that. We moved it from Kentucky to Illinois, and then we moved it back from Illinois back back down to Kentucky. And hibiscus are supposed to produce these beautiful flowers. Ours makes red flowers. Do you imagine a flower on a Hawaiian t-shirt or Hawaiian shirt? That's what they look like. They're beautiful. And they usually do about one, maybe two a day, and then they, they fall off. But in the summertime, they just they just keep blooming. Um, ours has not had a bloom for five years. Uh, maybe there's one, Andrea says, I think. And so this past spring, we bring it inside every year. <laughs> and it sits in our, in our back room. Because it, it's, it's, a, it's a summer plant. It's got to stay in there. And then we take it out in the spring. We took it out this spring, and I said, if there's no flower on this plant this year, we're getting rid of it. <laughs> there hasn't been a flower 
yet. Still has time. There's still time. The year's not over yet. But I could tell that Andrea didn't really agree with my assessment of what we needed to do. And in part because there's, there's this history, right? I mean, this plan has been with us for longer than, than three of our children, probably. Maybe all of them. I, I don't know. It's, it's been with us forever. So I want to cut it down. And Jesus, and, and Jesus, Andrea is saying, that's a good slip, right? <laughs> Andrea says, let's, let's wait. That attitude is, is reflected here in, in verse 8, isn't it? So the vine dresser answers the owner of the vineyard, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. The, the tree this tree should be producing fruit. There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, by this time, there should be figs on it. And so the, the fact that the owner wants to cut this tree down is not, um, it, it's not overreacting. In the same way that me wanting to get rid of this hibiscus is not overreacting. <laughs> Maybe it is. But it's, it's not overreacting. It, it, he, this, is, this is right. Why, why are we wasting time with this thing? It's, it's, it's taken up space. This tree should be producing. It's, it's been given plenty of time. It's in this beautiful choice spot in the, in the vineyard. But the kindness and the mercy of the vine dresser says, let's just wait one more year. Let's just, let, let, uh, here, I'll, I'll commit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig around it. I'm going to get some fertilizer. We're going to do everything that we can to see this thing produce some fruit. The vine dresser represents to us the heart of God, the, the patience of God. Is he right in judging sin? Yes. And when do we deserve that judgment? Now. We, we all deserve it right now. We all deserve to face this tragedy and stand before God with nothing to stand on. But God is filled with mercy and patience and kindness. We deserve His judgment. And every time tragedy strikes others or us, it should put, cause us to pause and to remember that we need to repent. But, but here, here's this picture of God, as it were, on his, on his hands and His knees, digging around this tree, spreading fertilizer, hoping that it will produce some fruit so that it will not face judgment. He does all that He can to see this tree bear fruit, and He does all that He can to see us turn and believe and repent. Romans 2, 1-5 says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. So when we judge others, we condemn ourselves because we're doing the same thing because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, including us. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? No. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance I love that the the, the tragedy that occurs is meant to lead us to repentance and the kindness and the patience of God is meant to lead us to repentance why? because as 2 Peter chapter 3 says 
It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is not that He comes into the vineyard and says, Cut them all down, I don't see any fruit. <laughs> the heart of God is that He comes to the vineyard and says, What can we do? How, how can we dig around this plan? What, what kind of patience and kindness and mercy could we show to see this tree bear some fruit? What, what, what a beautiful thing the heart of God is towards us. I mean, He would have given up on me long ago if He just said, it's been three years, no fruit. I mean, even, even as a follower of Christ, so often I feel fruitless, and yet Jesus comes, and He comes to us, and He's patient. He says, let's do whatever we can. Let's, let's see the, the, the fruit of the Spirit grow in His life and in, in her life. How ironic that God is so patient with us, but we are so impatient with others. Maybe there's those that you have been talking to about the Gospel for year after year after year. Maybe three years, four years, and you finally say, you know what? No fruit. I'm done with this. I'm not talking to him anymore. What's the heart of God, though? Let's give it one more year. Let, let's keep digging. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can to dig around this plant. But maybe, just maybe this year, there'll be, there'll be fruit. We should not grow weary in well-doing. We should recognize that the patience and the kindness of God has led us to repentance. And it may be that our patience and our kindness towards others will be something that God uses to lead them to repentance. So I encourage you, if you're ready to give up on someone because you don't see any fruit, give it another year. And then next year, give it another year. Then give it another year. We keep praying, we keep seeking, we keep calling them to repentance because that's what God has done with us. But but if we're here, we also need to remember that that God's patience is not forever. He is long suffering. But there is a length to how to that to how long he will be patient with us because it does say here if it should bear fruit next year well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. There will be a day when the unfruitful tree is cut down. There will be a day when those who do not repent and believe in Christ will be cut down. And so I say, don't don't presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Don't, Don't presume that He will be slow in His anger forever because there will be a day when He comes in judgment. And so when tragedy comes, it's to cause us to say, Well, what if that was me in this moment? Am I ready? We need to have those kind of conversations. Would we be bold this week to to ask those kind of questions, to be like Jesus? What if that was you? But what if this happened to you? Are are you ready to face God? And if people continue to reject us, remember how patient God is. He is kind towards us. I love this picture of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? That he is there and he just says, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's just rejoice in the patience of God. How long was God patient with you? How long has God been patient with me? Not not only impatient to the point that you did come to repentance and faith, but God continues to be patient with us, doesn't he? 
He's waiting. He wants us to, to he wants to see fruit in our lives, but he he will be patient. Let us not spurn his patience. Let's not take advantage of that patience, but strive to see the fruit born in our lives. We see this this heart of of serving most clearly, don't we, in in the cross of Christ. That Jesus is willing to do it. It's it's not just getting down on his knees and and digging and fertilizing, but but Jesus becomes a human being. That that's how kind and patient he is towards us. He comes in the flesh to speak to us and to to show forth the gospel and to call us to repentance and faith. Then he moves all the way in the, in this life of full obedience to the Father. He moves to the cross, and he's willing to die for us as an example in the, the greatest tragedy that the world has ever seen. And Jesus takes this tragedy and turns it for good. He turns it for the opportunity for us to repent and believe. And so that, that's what we look on now. We look on this thing that could have been the greatest tragedy in the world, the, the slaughter of the Son of God, and yet He has made it something that, that draws us into repentance, that draws us into faith. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, that's, that's what we're being called into. We're being called to remember what Christ has done. To, to remember how He shed His blood for us, how His body was broken, so that, that we might know forgiveness of sins.